welcome back to You Know What I've Been Wondering. I'm Sarah. I'm Jane. Oh, you don't need to be that close. I got a real close <laughs> microphone from that. I'm Jane. I'm over here. <laughs> I feel like I should do with us like a left and right ear. Like I'm the left ear, you're the right. Would that be weird listening to us? Oh, yeah. Well, it would maybe, maybe sound like you're sitting in between us. Yeah, I feel like that could be comforting. Like you have two friends, we're just chatting to you. Sitting on either side of the couch. I'm gonna try it one episode and we'll see if we'll see if we hate it. <laughs> see what Aaron says. Yeah. <laughs> Aaron and Laurel, we'll ask them. <laughs> We've surveyed our audience and results. <laughs> <laughs> How are you, Jane? Um, I'm doing okay. I'm sleppy. Um <laughs> You're not getting enough sleep up there? Uh, I'm fine. I mean, well, first of all, my bed is right up against a window. So it's like the mm-hmm. second the sun comes up, it's like, good morning. And I messed up my sleep schedule a couple nights ago because I stayed up pretty late working oh, on no. some homework, but also watching Money Heist. <laughs> oh, mood. Big mood. So <laughs> everybody watch Money Heist. It's amazing. So I'm a little sleepy, but I'm okay. How are you? I'm good. I'm doing pretty good. I just got back to Pennsylvania from going to New York, and now I'm going back to New York later this week, and then I'll be back in Pennsylvania. It's just a, it's just a full thing, you know? Back and forth. A great big back and forth, but it's been fun. Um, it was a holiday weekend, but it didn't feel like it because, nope. first of all, we don't celebrate Fourth of July in this house, and then second <laughs> of all, <laughs> like, it's been a holiday for four months. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's been weird. a holiday week in my whole life. Um, but it was nice to, you know, see my mom and have some barbecue. So oh yeah, yeah. We went to like a small gathering at my aunt's house. Oh, that's nice. That was very spread out. My parents and did, I were at a table way on the other side of the backyard. Did they still have fireworks? But here's the annoying thing, is that the town like council, whoever's normally in charge of that, decided mm-hmm. not to. They decided mm-hmm. that it was like a hazard to have people congregating to watch fireworks. So they like mm-hmm. announced that there would be no fireworks this year. Yeah. But then this one rich guy who owns like half the town decided that he would do them himself. Oh. Because geez. the town canceled them. So fireworks happened last night, but my family decided to boycott them um, and a- avoid the crowds. Uh, but it was just nuts because last night driving through town to get to my aunt's house, it was so crowded downtown, like not normal 4th of July levels in a coastal town in Maine, but um, it looked like a regular summer night that isn't 4th of July. I was just, I'm nervous about my town's numbers going up because of this weekend and because this one guy just decided that we had to have fireworks. Right. That was super selfish of him. And he was, the thing that's frustrating is he definitely was trying to be like, I'll be the hero that brings you fireworks. But it's like, no, you're the guy that's going to give everybody COVID, you know? Exactly. For sure. For sure. Well, on that note, should we get started? Sure. So last week you asked me about the Myers-Briggs personality test. Oh, yes. Now, I actually liked reading about this because it, it was, um... It involved a lot of ladies, you know? Oh, yeah. Well, at least three. The Myers-Briggs assessment comes from, it began with this woman named Catherine Cook Briggs and her daughter, Isabel Briggs Myers, a mother-daughter pair. 
Um, they lived in the United States in the early mid 20th century. Well, they lived throughout the 20th century, but this idea began in the early mid 20th century. Okay. Isabel Briggs Myers, the daughter, um, at the time her name was just Isabel Briggs, and yes. she became engaged to this man named Clarence Myers. And when Isabel introduced her future husband to her mother, Catherine Cooks Briggs, Catherine Cook Briggs couldn't help but notice that her future son-in-law she thought had a really unique personality and saw the world in a very specific way and she specifically noticed that he had a very distinctly different personality from her daughter and that they were both very two different types of people but yet they still got along really well and made a really good couple that's good and she from this grew intrigued about the idea of personality and decided to start researching literature to understand different temp- different temperaments and personality types. Cool. So in 1921, this guy named Carl G. Jung uh, published a book called Psychological Types. In 1923, Briggs got her hands on an English translation and found that her ideas of personality really meshed with what Carl Jung was saying and she really liked his ideas and she thought, even though, like, she agreed with everything he was saying, her own ideas were really rough and still in development and not quite finalized, but he was saying similar things to her, but had, like, a really set, developed, like, theory and concept of different personality types, and so she brought this to her daughter, Isabel, and the two of them thought, oh, this is so cool, everyone, everyone should read about this, um, particularly, um, when World War II came around, uh, at the end of the war, Briggs felt that the world was particularly divided, and she felt that if people could understand each other better, they'd work better together, and they'd, there'd be less conflict in the world, and the whole world would be a better place. That's a valiant idea. I know. So she became really sure of this idea of a psychological type, as Carl Jung had put forward, and she wanted to create a method that would indicate an individual's type. Mm-hmm. So she spent the next 20 years developing questions and validating the instrument that sh- she created, which I'll get into what the instrument is, and her theories. She and... invented the trumpet. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't. She didn't. Um, and the MBTI instrument was first published in 1962. Now, sadly, Catherine Cook Briggs passed away in 1968, but her daughter Isabel continued the project. Cool. Teamed up with a clinical psychologist named Mary McCulley to start Typology Lab uh, in 1969, which is a year that keeps coming up for us. I know. We haven't talked about 1969 in a while. I brought it up in one of our episodes recently. I don't remember what it was. It might have been the Black Panther, but I remember being like, <gasps> it's back. <laughs> <laughs> well, we talked about 1968 last week. But I mean, yeah, maybe it was Black Panthers. Mm. But I, for- I remember I forgot to mention it, and later it dawned on me, like, oh, I didn't even mention the fact that 1969 was one of the significant years. Yeah. Anyway. Well, I think we all just in history now know that 1969, everything happened. That's <laughs> true. It all happened. I wonder if they'll talk about 2020 in the future the same way 1969 is talked about. Just because so much. I mean, none of it's good. <laughs> uh, yeah. It's Just true. Like so much is happening. I know. It's true. I feel like they will, though. So, in 1965, a company was formed called CPP, which stands for Consulting Psychologists Press, 
and this company would later be renamed Myers the Myers-Briggs Company. And what okay. they do is they publish, research, and update the MBTI instrument. In the same year, uh, Isabel and Mary's Typology Lab became the Center for Applications of Psychological Type, the CAPT. Now, all the CAPT really does is they do their own further research and data collection okay. and training and publication of stuff for the Myers-Briggs Company. Really, the Myers-Briggs Company mostly has to do, deal with, like, the test and um, workshopping it with different um, companies that they do workshops for and things like that. But I think the mm -hmm. CABT just really specifically focuses on research and psychological study. Isabel Briggs Myers also passed away in 1980, but she left all of the MBTI copyrights to her children, Peter and Catherine Myers, who Catherine's named after her mom. That's so sweet. Oh, that is really yeah. sweet. Uh, since 1989, the Myers-Briggs Company began training practitioners, which if you go on their website, you can look into how to become certified in Myers-Briggs. And I, I think that's just, you, you get certification for leading um, workshops and when you're brought mm -hmm. in yeah. to places to educate about it and mm -hmm. how to help people understand their type and things like that. I don't like that thing we did at the beginning of college. What was that called? The um... Strengths Quest? Strengths Quest, yeah. You have to get, like, trained to do that, too. Yeah. The MBTI instrument is just the test that you can take. It's online now. I think in the past, it was published. In, there were many different books that were published that had it in it. I think you would analyze your own results somehow. Mm -hmm. I don't know exactly how you would do it. Calculate it yourself, because I don't understand how the website does it. Like those quizzes in Tiger Beat. <laughs> yeah, probably. But this test is, like, it's entirely, like, they give you... Um, a state it's mostly like a lot of personality tests they'll give you a statement and you indicate the level of which you agree or disagree mm -hmm. or you like or dislike it or things like that mm -hmm. and the mbti stands for the myers-briggs type indicator so mm -hmm. the test is the myers-briggs type indicator instrument mm -hmm. uh, i imagine it's just kind of wordy to add another hour. yeah yeah but uh, the Myers-Briggs Company has since evolved into the Myers-Briggs Foundation. Oh. And the foundation has four goals. Extending the benefits of, psych of psychological type throughout the world. Expanding the MBTI theory to encompass new understanding and research. Encouraging the development and use of tools appropriate to the understanding of psychological type as a complex dynamic system and educating through conferences, symposia, and the publication of monographs. Cool. It's really just like they were like, we want to help the world understand itself because it's a useful tool to have in educational environments, in work environments. Absolutely. It's really like if numerology was like, <laughs> although numerology <laughs> is less based on real psychology, but <laughs> yeah. <laughs> if the other types of personality indicators like really worked to spread their message just to like it's literally the entire thing of it is personal benefit yeah and I feel like I understand how it's helpful like we did when we had our work training we did a bunch of stuff about learning like leadership skills and leader yeah. types you know and so and it was helpful to know it's like oh I'm this was a long running joke I am a dominant leader type and <laughs> But, like, that was helpful to know that, like, I am yeah. kind of a, I'm a bit of a force in the workplace, you know, that's good to know. 
it's because like I will always vocalize what I think and what I want but it was good to know that like my coworkers didn't do that so I had to know hey I have to ask them because I'm like dominating the work culture right now mm-hmm. so it's good to know and it's the same idea it's like it's good to know these things about you that like there are things I'm going to find really easy I already know my Myers-Briggs type like there are things that I know I'm going to find really easy because I am in I'm an extrovert versus mm-hmm. like my friends that are introverts. I can be aware like, oh, this isn't going to be as easy for them. Mm-hmm. So I found there's this one quote I found from Isabel Briggs Myers that I wanted to read that says, Ooh. when people differ, a knowledge of type lessens friction and eases strain. In addition, it reveals the value of difference. No one has to be good at everything. And I, I just really like that she emphasized the value of difference. Mm-hmm. and how that's really important in our world yeah uh, I also like that she said no one has to be good at everything but that I that one I thought was less relevant <laughs> it is a nice sentiment um, yes absolutely and also she says it is up to each person to recognize his or her true preferences now I noticed interestingly that the Myers-Briggs website itself I was looking on there for explanations of each of the types and that's not as much on there. You can take the test on there to find your type. And I think mm-hmm. once, once you find your type, it tells you a little bit about yourself, but mm-hmm. I think it, in that vein, it's less so like, let's all, let me just tell you all about the different types. It's more of like, literally you take the test and it helps you understand yourself and yeah. then of, and then you it, like, it's sort of up to you to investigate what other people are like and, um, get to know other people and see how things interest them and affect them and what their preferences are and things like that. And, um, but there are many other websites that do analyze all of the different types and give you right. detailed um, explanations of what they are. Yeah, that's super cool. The purpose of the Myers-Briggs Type Indicator um, Personality Inventory is to make the theory of psychological types described by Carl Jung, understandable and useful to people's lives. The essence of the theory is that um, much seemingly random variations in the behavior is actually quite orderly and consistent, being due to basic differences in the ways individuals prefer to use their perception and judgment. Mm -hmm. This is like the main paragraph on the website, the first thing you see when you go. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Perception involves all of the ways of becoming aware of things, people, happenings, or ideas. Judgment involves all of the ways coming to conclusions about what has been perceived. If people differ systematically in what they perceive and in how they reach conclusions, then it is only reasonable for them to differ correspondingly in their interests, reactions, values, motivations, and skills. Now, Jung's theory presents four dichotomies. The MBTI identifies basic preferences for each of the four dichotomies. There are 16 possible combinations of these preferences, and those are the 16 types. The identification and description of the 16 distinctive personality types result from the interactions among the preferences. Now, I'm going to read you the four dichotomies. Great. Now, the first dichotomy, which indicates the first letter in your type, is Mm -hmm. favorite world. Do you prefer to focus on the outer world or on your own inner world? Um, if you prefer the former, then that is extroversion and you're an E. Or if you prefer your own inner world, then that is introversion and you're an I. So this, I, you're an E and I'm an I. Yeah. I'm pretty sure. The second dichotomy is information. Do you prefer to focus on the basic information you take in 
or do you prefer to interpret an ad meeting? Meaning, the first one is sensing, S, or, and the second one is intuition, N. Now, mm -hmm. I, it's a little odd that intuition is called N, but it's just that one of, there's already an I involved, yeah. so go with yeah. the second letter. No, it makes sense. Anything clunky and confusing. Yeah. The third dichotomy is decisions. When making decisions, do you prefer to first look at logic and consistency or first look at the people and special circumstances? This is thinking versus feeling, T and F. Fourth dichotomy is structure. In dealing with the outside world, do you prefer to get things decided or do you prefer to stay open to new information and options? This is judging versus perceiving, J mm -hmm. and P. So the your type is made up of four letters and it's either I or E, S or N, T or F, or J or, and J or P. Mm -hmm. Those are the four. I could list all 16 no, types, you don't but that to. would just be very yeah. repetitive and clunky. It would. <laughs> um, my type is INFP, which I went to a different website to get more of a description of that. And the like name for that is the mediator. What mm -hmm. is yours again? E... ESFJ. It's like the teacher or the moderator or something like that. Oh, this says it's the caregiver. Or the caregiver. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's what it is. That's what it is. Yeah. Interesting, interesting, interesting. I was thinking, I'm mixing that up with in Enneagrams, I'm the achiever. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I've pulled up a description of my personality. And I thought we could read yours next. Yay! So... INFPs me, uh, tend to be introverted, quiet, and reserved. Being in social situations tends to drain their energy, and they prefer interacting with a select group of close friends. So far, I'm in agreement. Yeah, While they I would agree. Alone, this should not necessarily be confused with shyness. Instead, it simply means that INFPs gain energy from spending time alone. On the other hand, they have to expand to expend energy in social situations. I do. I I really agree with how that's worded because. Mm -hmm. It does, like, just because I do gain energy from being alone doesn't mean I can be alone all the time because I have to get that energy out. Right, right, right. In a social way somehow. Definitely. Yeah. I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. INFPs typically rely on intuition and are more focused on the big picture rather than the nitty-gritty details. They can be quite meticulous about things that they really care about or projects they are working on, but tend to ignore mundane or boring details. <laughs> Might explain why my room is always so messy. <laughs> That's funny. INFPs place an emphasis on personal feelings and their decisions are more influenced by these concerns rather than by objective information. That's true. <laughs> yeah, that's true. But that's the thing about um, Myers-Briggs is every single person who I've uh, talked to it about that has read about their type is always like, it's so true. It's, yeah. It's, Sometimes people like, don't always agree with their zodiac sign or what have yeah. you. But yeah. Myers-Briggs tends to be very, very accurate. When and I first I, got into it in college and I was, like, talking to people about it and they started reading up on it, we all were like, yeah, that's very accurate. This last little thing here is that I, when it comes for INFPs, when it comes to making decisions, INFPs like to keep their options open. They often delay making important decisions just in case something about this situation changes. <laughs> <laughs> wow, yeah, that really does sound like you. I'm really getting mad right now. When decisions are made, they are usually based on personal values rather than logic. I, I feel kind of exposed. Shane's <laughs> like, I'll just leave. <laughs> Literally like, mm, no thanks. <laughs> 
strengths include that I'm loyal and devoted, sensitive to feelings, caring and interested in others. I work well alone. I value close relationships and I'm good at seeing, quote, the big picture. Weaknesses are, can be overly idealistic, tend to take everything personally, difficult to get to know, sometimes loses sight of the little things, and I overlook <laughs> details. <laughs> Ouch. Ouch. But those are some really great positive attributes. You can't focus on the negative. You have to look at them and be like, oh, they said I'm loyal, you know? I'm Do literally the Leo taking, thing and focus on the compliments. I'm literally already taking everything personally. Yeah. Okay, now I'm going to go back to the options. And you were, you said ESFJ. ESFJ, the caregiver. Yes, 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 yes. In addition to deriving pleasure from helping others, ESFJs also have a need for approval. They expect their kind and giving ways to be noticed and appreciated by others. Oh, no. <laughs> Ooh, that hurts. <laughs> They are sensitive to the needs and feelings of others and are good at responding and providing the care that people need. They want to be liked by others and are easily hurt by unkindness or indifference. That's oh. true. <laughs> ESFJs derive their value system from external sources, including the community at large, rather than from intrinsic, ethical, and moral guidelines. People with this personality type who are raised with high values and standards grow up to be generous adults. ESFJs raised in a less enriched environment may have skewed ethics as adults and are more likely to be manipulative and self-centered. Oof. Good Ooh, I hope I'm the first. In a high moral. <laughs> yeah, I'd say I, I'd say I was raised with pretty high standards. That's good. Yeah. ESFJs also have a strong desire to exert control over their environment. Organizing, <laughs> planning, and scheduling help people with this personality type feel in command of the world around them. One time, Sarah and I went to Michael's and we were in the planner section and I thought she'd never leave. I, <laughs> I, I wouldn't. If you, have been, if you had not been with me, I wouldn't have left that aisle. I would have just stayed there. <laughs> I love it there so far away and then when I came back I was like oh no what if I lost nope she was in the exact same spot, <laughs> oh, that's my favorite place in the world ESFJs are naturally guild geared towards understanding other people they are careful observers of others and are adept at supporting and bringing out the best in people because they are Aww. so good at helping others feel good about themselves people feel drawn to ESFJs one common myth about ESFJs is that they can sometimes be dormant, allowing others that they can sometimes be a doormat. My bad. Oh, okay. <laughs> allowing others to walk over them out of fear of disapproval or rejection. While they are people pleasers, this does not mean they are pushovers. Yeah, I ain't no pushover. That's right. Your strengths are that you are kind and loyal, outgoing, organized, practical and dependable enjoys helping others and your weaknesses i love you are that you are needy approve approval seeking and sensitive to criticism that's so true <laughs> like, they're so right <laughs> like I've, I've read either this page or one very similar before and every time i read it i'm like you're right man i am just like that i don't know if there are only 16 types of people in the world so I'm right. sh I'm sure that's like when you get into each thing, there's like many many it's many many right, types of, of course. types. Of course. 
but just ba the fact that it's so based on psychology, I, I think is one of the reasons why this is one of the most accurate personality things. Mm -hmm. When I and first got really into always this, feel so read by it, you know? Oh, definitely. When I first got really into this, there was a page, I think it still exists, and it was um, television characters as Myers-Briggs types, like, yeah. not even television, like, famous movie characters, famous fictitious people, and they were all broken down, and I remember when I first, like, that's how I first connected with Myers-Briggs, was I saw that page first and I was like what is this and I went and I took the test and then I went back and looked at the list and the characters who they compared me to I was like you're so right I'm just like like and like, I'm not saying like characters that are ESFJs are Leslie Nope, Monica Geller um <laughs> yeah Princess Jasmine and I'm not saying there are any of those people <laughs> that I'm like yes I am just like them but they have character traits and they have moments when I watch their shows or their movies that I'm like wow I really relate to that like, the mm -hmm. fact that Jasmine's pet is a giant tiger. Super relate. <laughs> very relate to that. Like, threatening, gorgeous, like, very showy. Like, I, I relate. There's a scene in Friends when Monica is, like, getting a party ready, and she's, like, having them all, like, wait to do something. I forget what. And she says, okay, everybody, fix your attitudes. The fun starts in five minutes. I was like, that's me. Being like... <laughs> You're not having fun until I tell you the time it is to start having fun. And then there's like Leslie with her planners in Parks and Rec. Like I very and like her color coordinated binders. Like I relate to that very much. So I think that was also how I originally really got into it was like looking at other people, even if they're fictitious characters and what their Myers Briggs says and being like, oh yeah, like I really relate to that character. That makes sense to me. Like you're in an INFP and my favorite INFP in the whole world is Elsa, besides you. Like <laughs> it's that okay. makes sense to me. But I that makes sense. I'm Googling now what if they're what TV characters it's, are. Yeah, it's called the website's called like T no, it's called like TV Tropes something. If you type in TV Tropes all one word and then Myers Briggs, I think it'll come up. But I will post this webpage on our website on our blog and you can see that and check it out because it's a really interesting thing is there anything else you anything else you have for this topic nope that's it fun times thank you so much jane that was no problem very, very interesting okie dokie so for the middle segment today i found this website it's called watchingamerica.com and the website features headlines of news outlets from across the world writing about America. And I thought this was important because I think in America, we get this very narrow vision of ourselves and we're such a polarized community. And so it's always Americans being like, the people in Florida are doing this, the people in New York are doing this. And it's very targeted at each other. But I do mm -hmm. think it's important to consider how the rest of the world sees us because we are only one country. And I'm not saying to eliminate that, to kind of try to diminish us because we are a world power. We are one of the richest um, And we're a big countries. country geographically too. Yeah. But I'm, I, I totally agree with you though that we are just one country. <laughs> yeah, we are one country, and but we have significant influence in the world. And therefore, I think it is important for us to understand and take into consideration how other countries see us so this mm -hmm. website watchingamerica.org publishes or kind of compiles headlines from other major countries around the world major and smaller countries as well um 
and compiles all the headlines that are being written about America. Um, something that I find increasingly important as we think about the fact that this is a pandemic, which means it's worldwide. So mm -hmm. I just want to read to you and highlight some things that other countries are saying. Great. Us. I so, feel like I'm going to be upset. I mean, it's like, it's hurtful, but it's also like, it's really eye-opening. And of course, the gut reaction is to be like, well, yes, America is like that, but I'm not like that. And mm -hmm. I think that's, I think sometimes like, as a person that's traveled a lot, like the best thing I can do as a tourist is to try to be a positive representation of my country, you know, and try to like, I think I, there are so many examples of like stereotypical American tourists being really entitled and being really um, self-centered and unappreciative. And so the best thing I can do when I'm traveling is try to break down that narrative, you know, and be like, mm -hmm. no, like that's not, Trump does not speak for all of America. Those tourists do not speak for all of us, especially as a young person, you know, to try to set a new precedent um, for the new generation of Americans that are coming to power. I think that's, I think that's the best we as individuals can do. Yeah. Um, but then, you know, also as citizens, the next step is voting and understanding what other countries think of our candidates and think of our politics. So that's where I'm coming from. Anyway, this article is from the Jerusalem Post, um, so it's from Israel. The headline is, in the end of Trump's term, the, word, the world's number one superpower is dying. Subheadline, the message Trump sends to the American people is, whatever we can't solve with force, we will solve with more force. And then they ended up quoting um, a retired General James Mattis, who was the former Secretary of Defense. This is the quote of his that they pulled. Donald Trump is the first president in my lifetime who does not try to unite the American people, does not even pretend to try. Instead, he tried to divide us. We are witnessing the consequences of three years of this deliberate effort. We are witnessing the consequence of three years without mature leadership. Wow. Um, I remember that. Yeah. And then the article goes on to talk about quality. I remember his yeah. name. Yeah. And then the article goes on to talk about the qualities of leadership and then you know like every media outlet has its problems they they quote the truly great leaders as being roosevelt and eisenhower who in themselves had their own issues you know so not to say that like yeah they got it right they knew who our strongest leader was like i i'm not saying that jerusalem's got it perfect either but it just is interesting to hear like their quote from general mattis and how much they take that to heart you know that that's what they're pulling from American media, that quote. And then they, co they compare Trump to Obama um, and they kind of vilify, um, not vilify, glorify Obama a little bit in the article. And then they start comparing it to their own politics. Um, and then they start talking about George Floyd and Officer Derek Chauvin, which like, it's amazing to me that people in Israel know his name, you know? They know George Floyd's name and they also know who to hold accountable for that. So that's the first article from the Jerusalem Post. Second article is from India. Um, headline, as Trump slides, Delhi should engage with Biden. They talk about um, how Sean Hannity, or how President Trump said to Sean Hannity last week on Fox News that Joe Biden is going to be president because, quote, some people don't love me. Um, <laughs> then they talk about the, then they talk about polls and they talk about points. They talk about Trump trailing Biden by 9.3% and how he's up, Biden's up by 9.6 points. 
of how he's behind in swing states such as Wisconsin, Michigan, Pennsylvania, and Florida. Statistics that I didn't even know. Um, they talk about the effects of Trump um, about COVID on Trump's campaign and again bring up some of the more slanderous evidence against Trump including the Access Hollywood tapes um, of him saying things like grab her by the pussy and they go into a little bit about how Biden has reached out um, to Indian government officials um, and has communicated with them in the past um, politically and what that would mean for them. So again it's like this is a country halfway across the world from us and they're still interested and writing about our politics. Mm -hmm. This article is from China. Article headline, Rampant U.S. Epidemic to Hurt the World, Global Times Editorial. Um, the U.S. is opening before it's safe, how, they, how we've decided that the pandemic isn't happening, and how, quite frankly, the risks that the U.S. is taking in regards to COVID-19 is going to put the entire world once again at risk for the pandemic. And essentially, they're saying that if the U.S. can't get it together and do something to protect its citizens against COVID-19, then the chances are much greater that the epidemic is or the pandemic is going to get much worse in other places again come this fall. Um, and that the chances of another surge in countries in Europe and Asia are more likely because of the U.S.'s negligence. Sounds it's crazy. Good. It's fascinating they that they called it a U.S. virus when like all of the ignorant people over here are calling it like the Wuhan virus or like blaming China so much for it. Right. It's true. It's true. This is from Saudi Arabia. Um, article headline, Equity Should Be at Heart of Efforts to End U.S. Divisions. It is an article about the polarization of America. It talks about the Confederate uh, statues that are getting torn down in southern states and about the, um, the divide between education on the Confederacy and the teaching of the history of Confederate generals specifically, which is mm -hmm. interesting, which is interesting that that's in a Saudi Arabian news source, but it makes sense. They're talking about the fight to, the fight over, like, is this ratifying history or is it erasing history? Quote, the worrying part in this feud, largely between the right and the left, is people resorting to violence. Though it is only of a low level, violence should not be an option used to solve problems. However, public anger tends to result in violence. Heavily armed white militias that started mobilizing to protest the lockdown got energized by the recent Black Lives Matter demonstrations. The members view far left movements such as Antifa as a terrorist threat they need to counter. So it is interesting. You can definitely see um, Saudi Arabia is a very Muslim country and Muslims in general are very anti-violence. Mm -hmm. um, that's like a pillar of Islam, I believe, is nonviolence. I don't know if it's like an official pillar, but I know that's really important to them. It's an so important it was, value, yeah. Yeah, it is interesting hearing them say, you know, well, it's a problem because everybody's resorting to violence. And I think you definitely see that um, their own sort of cultural take on things, as opposed to in America, we have a very rich history of riots and violence as a method of change. So, yeah. I do find that interesting. And then they end up talking about McCarthyism as well and going into that. And then in the end, they like quote last week tonight with John Oliver. It's a very, it, I was like, this is truly fascinating. The, the different facets of our history and culture they have pulled in to write this article. Okay, this is from Kuwait. Wait, this isn't from Kuwait. This is from the United Arab Emirates, sorry. Mm. Um, Trump's toxic legacy hurts US soft power. They talk about why is Trump arming America? The, it's the, the main point of this article that I really appreciate is that 
Um, they said, quote, the U.S. was a tinderbox of racism, inequality, and broken politics, but Trump led the match. Like, we were broken. Trump did not make this country broken, but he absolutely highlighted and made worse the inequities that already existed. And that is the reason that you're seeing this sort of um, explosion of anger and rage and a push for change like we haven't seen in quite some time um, because Trump, is, while other presidents might have ignored them or undermined them or tried to quietly reform them, Trump blatantly exposed them through his own ignorance and his own racism um, in a way that has really caused this problem specifically. Um, totally. And they talk about the irony that he's saying that, like, the irony that he has made the pandemic so much worse globally, and yet it says that it will find anybody to blame but himself. That's another major point. These are, a lot of these are in opinion and editorial as well. So it's a lot of people just, like, debating what they think is going on in America, which is still interesting. And then an article from Kuwait is called America, Democracy, and Chaos. Subheadline, President Trump faces a group of anarchists in addition to his Democratic opponents who do not want him to serve a second term. So it's interesting. I th this is the only article that I see separating anarchists from the Democrats, you know? <laughs> yeah. It's anarchists and Democratic opponents, which I do think is an important distinction because when we have a two-party system, the rest of the world, I think, easily could say, oh, are you a liberal or are you a conservative or are you a Republican or are you a Democrat? When in actuality, living through this in America, the spectrum of politics is wide and there are certainly more people that are more um, radically left and radically right, but most of us live in that center. I bet many of our parents or the parents of people of our generation at one point voted politically very differently than they do now. And maybe when they're older, they'll go back. You know, it's a, mm -hmm. it's an ever moving needle, you know? Um, and so I appreciate that this article took a moment to kind of pull apart the people that are rioting in the streets and the people that are pushing for this change and the democratic party, because I don't necessarily see them as one and the same. I mean, that's true. I definitely think centrist liberals are uh, very different ideologically than farther left liberals. And Absolutely. It's, def it's definitely not a, like a, not a one or the other type thing. It's more of a spectrum. Absolutely. So those are the articles um, that I wanted to read the headlines of and grab a couple of highlights and, you know, discuss what they are saying. Like I said, the website is called watchingamerica.com. I'll post the link on our website uh, so you can check it out. It's super interesting. They're updated pretty frequently. Um, they also have a Twitter account that you can follow. And again, I just find it important to be aware of how the rest of the world sees us. You know, we always are painting pictures of other countries, particular countries in the Middle East. And we have a very biased view of them, but we have to remember that they also have biased view of us yeah, um, that's true. and it's it's important to look at both sides of the coin yeah. so that's that anyway awesome thank you you're welcome so moving into the the main part of our day um <laughs> so this last friday hamilton came out on disney plus um mm -hmm. which i have seen on facebook many people have watched and that's great i'm glad it's available to um, a wider audience. So today uh, you asked me to talk about the real 
history of Alexander Hamilton and really who he was and sort of his political ideas. Um, I will say that it would take, I could, I mean, Ron Chernow wrote a whole 800 page book on this man and didn't even get to all of it. So I certainly am not going to get to all of yeah. it in this one podcast. Um, and I am going to talk about this with the assumption that you know what is in the show. Um, <laughs> yeah. So if you are not, if you're listening and you have not watched Hamilton, not even listened to Hamilton, never even heard of Hamilton, I am going to skip around a little bit. Um, and I will fill in what I think is absolutely necessary for you to know, but I'm not really following the trajectory of the show. This is going to be like a series of little tangents about other things that he did that I think are important to be critical of. Mm -hmm. Now, I'm going to start by saying that like, obviously it is a musical and it is a show and there are several imagined moments and small things in this show that are incorrect. For example, very famous example is that in the show, Angelica says, my father has no sons. That is not true. Angelica Schuyler had many brothers. What? Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, Philip Schuyler had like 16 kids or something. Um, he had a lot of kids. So that's not, that's not true. Um, and there are other moments like that that are... Uh, the, where the history is twisted a little bit or things are added to make for more interesting musical moments because at the end of the day this was a show made for entertainment okay yeah. when you're talking about when you're talking about a broadway show and i know this originated off broadway but even so when you're talking about big theater the first intention because of the nature of arts in america is going to be how is this going to make money because if it cannot make money then it cannot stay open and that's always the goal to keep something open and keep something running so it has to be entertaining first and i'm not saying that to criticize lin-manuel miranda because i do think some of the work he's done has been very uh, representationally important and politically important i'm a huge fan of his first show in the heights i think it really put um, the people of Washington Heights on people's radar and like really made them sympathetic in a wonderful and beautiful way. Um, and I feel similarly about Hamilton in some ways, but I do want to emphasize that I think the first and foremost duty to the show for him was to make it entertaining and not necessarily make it accurate and make it um, as political as we want it to be or as woke, I'll say, as mm -hmm. we want it. So I'm going to be talking about specifically the revisionist history that is settled on in this musical to make it look more revolutionary and woke than it actually is and to make it more entertaining. And I will say it to make it more comfortable for white people to watch. I'll start by saying that I, I do love this show. I've seen it. I find it to be artistically brilliant. And there are assertions, there are assertions in the show that I stand by 100%. Assertions that I think are written to be separate from the people saying them. For example, one of the most applauded lines in the whole show is immigrants, we get the job done. And I love this lauding of immigrants because I think immigrants make this country amazing and beautiful, but I will say that there is a particular irony in it that the two people that say this in the show by played by actors of color were two white immigrants, okay? I, I, I acknowledge that those, that those exist at the same time. And I think there are many moments of that, like that in the show, just enough to make you say, wow, yes, you are right. How woke of you. What a great thought. And make you feel good about asserting it, but stop you from really analyzing what that moment is doing. And that's what I'm going to talk about. I also want to say that like, accepting something as perfect doesn't make us better citizens and doesn't encourage us to learn. If you look at a hero of yours and you say they are perfect, they have no flaws, then you are already failing to acknowledge their 
existence as a person and your ability to learn from their mistakes. And I think that's all we can do as a society is learn from each other's mistakes and be critical. And as an artist and as a theater maker, like it, I feel like it's my duty to be critical because it's important as a learning tool and as an artistic tool. You know, we're only as good as the stuff we made before and we're only made better by our chances to observe and improve. And mm -hmm. I think Hamilton offers a very good um, format for that. In the musical, Alexander Hamilton is painted as a perfect political character. And yes, I will say perfect. Even though he makes mistakes, the show opens singing his praises and accomplishments against all odds. Now we have to remember that Lin-Manuel Miranda wrote the show knowing that he would star as Hamilton. So naturally he sculpted a likable picture of him because he was writing for himself. It is true that Alexander Hamilton was born in Nevis in the British West Indies as the illegitimate child of a British officer and a woman named Rachel, who is half British and half white. I mention this because Hamilton, like all the other founding fathers and characters featured in the show, was a white man. And fun fact, as a little side note, this is like the only fun fact I have, it is debated whether or not he was born in 1755 or 1757. There's evidence to support both, and we still don't know Hamilton's birth year. I think I've heard that before. Yeah, yeah. We don't we don't know for sure how old he was when he came to America, or when he came to mainland America. Yeah, I'm not going to go over his life story because the show is actually pretty accurate when it comes to hitting the big points. Um, you know, when you look at the grand scope of things, you could say served in the war, served as Washington's aide, Secretary of the Treasury. Um, and then he died very shortly thereafter, like the Reynolds affair happened, everything, but it really does hit all of the biggest moments of his career. Um, so rather, I want to talk about some of his political ideologies and minor events that were still important in building character that the show doesn't mention. Mm -hmm. So first, Hamilton was a huge supporter of the U.S. Army um, or the Continental Army before we had ratified our Constitution. Hamilton led an artillery unit early in the war until he joined George Washington's staff in 1777. Under Washington, he did lead the Battle of Yorktown in 1781, a moment that's featured in the musical. Hamilton's service in the Continental Army propelled Hamilton high into society, which meant that its establishment was a top priority at the Constitutional Convention. I bring this up because I want you to remember that as a founding father, these were the men that decided what was going to be important and laid the groundwork for our government, which still indicates what is important today. If Hamilton, as a founding father, emphasized the, important of the, military, the importance of the military when he ratified the Constitution, then naturally that has led to our military being severely overfunded and very, very large. And yes, that groundwork did start with Hamilton. These are not coincidences. Interesting. Uh -huh. In 1783, his support of the army almost led to a military coup. This was known as the Newburgh Conspiracy, and it's often very looked over, but was one of the most controversial moments of his entire political career. Continental Congress officers feared the army would be disbanded before they were paid for their service in the Revolutionary War and suspected that they would lose all political influence without their military titles. Hamilton used this fear to put pressure on Washington and get the officers paid, himself included. Mm -hmm. Those officers ended up establishing the Society of the Cincinnati, which was organized to maintain their military status and power in order to exert it over government, of which Hamilton was a member. Again, this started right from the beginning of our government and is still very prevalent today um, because of the link between military and the head of office. I mean, our president is the commander in chief. Like, those are very strong ties. And which is why we have the largest military in the world. 
It is through establishing wealthy connections like these, in addition to his marriage to the rich Elizabeth Schuyler, that Hamilton cemented his power. Hamilton was an advocate for life terms in government. Over the course of the revolution and after the war, Hamilton wrote often about his distrust of the common American. He thought that the common people needed to be controlled by their quote, betters, otherwise they would run into anarchy. In New York, at the Constitutional Convention, he argued for restrictions on the Democratic legislator, and at the Constitutional Convention in 1787, he proposed plans for a powerful executive and Senate serving for life. It is a known fact that he wanted George Washington to be president until he died. And this was because he actually had a lot more faith in the British government than, he, than we think he did. Um, he was a big fan of the monarchy in general as an idea. He just thought that it needed to be made stronger in America. Um, mm -hmm. he, he really thought, he really saw democracy as an elitist opportunity that only the best of the best should be in charge. Um, these are very foundational ideas for him. And again, when you think about him as a founding father, these are the ideas that are worked into our constitution because of his presence there. Things that are underwritten, but exist. A delegate at the Constitutional Convention recorded him as saying, nothing but a permanent body can check the imprudence of democracy. So he actually thought that the common people were some were people that needed to be controlled, not represented, as we paint this idea that like, oh, we all were looking for representation, but we weren't all mm -hmm. looking for it. There are very high up, very rich people in the government that wanted to control the common person. It is also important to mention that while Jefferson and Hamilton did go head to head quite often, Hamilton had many other significant opponents and Tim and Jefferson agreed on more than we think. Hamilton paints, Hamilton the musical paints Madison as Jefferson's sidekick. Madison was formidable in his own right. Madison also wrote the Federalist Papers with Hamilton, so they had agreements. Um, Madison did go on to be president, um, and it, it is, it is a misrepresentation in the musical to show him as this, like, sickly guy who's only there to, like, add, like, put the period on Jefferson's sentences. He yeah. wealth of power, um, in, he was a major part of the Continental Congress, um, and had Hamilton lived longer, even after Jefferson was out of office, he still would have had a lot of problems with James Madison. Hamilton points out Jefferson's problems with the National Bank, but, ha but Alexander Hamilton's theories on the French Revolution also drew battle lines within American politics. Thomas Jefferson was the French ambassador to the United, the U.S. French ambassador, I will say, um, and he spent a lot of time in France and fully believed in the French Revolution, um, and it was a huge point of contention between the two of them that Hamilton did not support that revolution, despite the fact that France had been pivotal in America's success in yeah. the revolution. Thomas Jefferson believed Hamilton would lead the country towards tyranny because he funneled money to wealthy creditors like his father-in-law. Now, in the musical and in our history of it, we really support and laud Hamilton for creating the National Bank. The National Bank has done some very important work in our country in establishing us as a world power. And yes, having that credit did allow the U.S. to rise to the prominence we have now in such a relatively short amount of time. However, um, the criticisms of it are very fair in saying that 
they really were taking money from the South in order to get people in New York rich get and make sure that the elite were morally and drive open that divide between the commoner and the upper class that divide that Ham that Hamilton also wanted to be political and he realized that if the upper class continued to only have more money and the lower class the people he wanted to control continued to have less then he could control politics by keeping only those he was interested in leading in office mm -hmm. and that was very orchestrated and very specific in Appalachia, during this time, men and women of rural communities organized local resistances against his financial plans. They refused to pay his taxes. In 1794, after three years of rejecting tax collection, the government sent an army to crush these, quote, insurgents, and Hamilton was among them. A website called History Extra writes, quote, a federal army marching on its own citizens to enforce a new tax, which would go to pay the interest on debts owed to an elite class of investors. That moment summed up Hamilton's America as viewed through the eyes of the most ordinary people. Mm. And this is why often the people that most celebrate Alexander Hamilton are the people that work on Wall Street, because he paved the way for their financial success, not the regular persons like I think the musical wants us to believe that like because Hamilton established his bank we can all have credit it really wasn't like that yeah incidents like this encouraged Jefferson to form political parties and an opposition movement he recognized that Hamilton wanted a thriving commercial and industrial nation but with extremely centralized power Jefferson knew from the beginning that in Hamilton's mind there was only a very small group of people that should be allowed to have power and I have a million problems with Jefferson but I do think he correctly evaluated that that should not be the case that it should not be only these people are deserving of power um, and that's why they often went head to head and that encouraged Jefferson to create the Democratic Republican Party. These military problems continued under the Adams administration. The U.S. was veering close to war with France for failure to repay their debts and Hamilton worked secretly to expand the federal army. He was promoted to major general and pushed his allies in Adams cabinet to raise new taxes for military spending, which of course led to more insurrection in the West. And as these taxes came in, Hamilton only continued to get richer from his position in the military. His demands were so large that he divided Adams's government at great cost to both the reputations. Abigail Adams is known to have warned her husband that Hamilton was dangerous, and she also compared his ambitions to that of Julius Caesar. He received that that comparison many times over mm. following the election of 1800 hamilton and adams were both left powerless in new york farmers and workers were sick of wealthy government control wealthy government and what they call gentleman control rich new yorkers essentially Makes they were sense. the ones they were the ones who ironically voted jefferson into office um i say ironically because they said oh well, we're sick of these wealthy elite elitists <laughs> jefferson was also a wealthy elitist he was just from the south so they saw him as more yeah um, they saw him as more of a working man which of course he wasn't he didn't work he did not work on his plantation at all um <laughs> but that was the that was the view of him and now, following, now that I've mentioned the election of 1800, it's time to talk about why Aaron Burr and Alexander Hamilton really hated each other. <laughs> Hamilton was pretty vocal about his distaste of future Vice President Aaron Burr. Um, when he ran for Vice President in 1796, Hamilton wrote, quote, I feel it is a religious duty to oppose his career. 
Hamilton saw Burr as a dangerous opportunist, which is, again, ironic because Hamilton himself was an opportunist, with flimsy political allegiance. There's a moment in the show um, where Hamilton says that he picks Jefferson um, in the election of 1800, which I'm about to talk about how that worked. Jefferson um, has beliefs. beliefs. Burr has none. Yeah. And, but that was true. That really was his issue with it, was that Hamilton was a man that would rather believe in the wrong thing strongly than the right thing, but be able to change your mind. He was a very headstrong person, and he was very headstrong in his beliefs, and he wanted political opponents who were the same. Mm-hmm. Again, I think it's fair to say that Hamilton is one of the reasons that we have a two-party system. I think he was very, very polarizing cool. in his ideas, which is ironic because Washington, his one of his closest friends and the people that he looked up to the most, warned Hamilton and the country against a bipartisan system. But Hamilton refused to compromise on his beliefs, and he was so, so opportunistic that he really began that wedge. Now, I do think that that wedge would have existed no matter what. Um, I don't think it's solely his fault, but I really think he planted those seeds of polarization and of a biparty system mm-hmm. um in the election of 1800 burr and jefferson uh, were running mates they had run as running mates in 1796 and the way the election used to work is that the person with the second to most votes would become vice president when they had run in 1796 Jefferson got the second most votes to John Adams, so Jefferson became vice president. Um, But their plan was, for 1800, was that they were going to run together. They wanted to encourage people to give their first vote to Jefferson and their second vote to Burr. I forget exactly how this happened, that this was possible, but it was. But what ended up happening is that they split the votes and they both won with 73 electoral college votes each. This meant that the electoral procedure moved to the House of Representatives, and it became a constitutional crisis when the Federalists threw their support behind Burr instead of Jefferson. The expectation was even if they tied, that the Congress would still give the victory to Jefferson and the vice presidency to Burr. So this Hamilton, the musical, paints this as a moment of the two of them unexpectedly running against each other, but this was an orchestrated um, partnership. They knew that they knew that they would be running together and they knew that they would be in office together um the two tied for 35 votes in the house of Rep- in the house of representatives but then a small group of federalists changed sides and voted in jefferson's favor and this would not have happened without hamilton's support of jefferson as quote the lesser of two evils a moment that happens in the show um what is true is that the ability for burr to have become president without Jefferson's permission made Jefferson very distrustful of Burr and their partnership was not a good one. Um, Burr did remain VP, but Jefferson did not support his renomination to a second term when he ran again in 1804. Also, the show makes it seem like the election of 1800 happened and then right afterwards was um, Hamilton's was the duel between Burr and Hamilton and Hamilton's subsequent death, but that was actually four years later. Oh. Um, the Hamilton died in 1804. In the same year as the election of 1804, a group of Federalists decided to enlist Burr into their party and elect him as governor, meaning once again Burr changed parties for political opportunity. Because of this, and because Burr was now technically a member of Hamilton's own party, Hamilton campaigns against Burr 
fervently and Burr lost the Federalist nomination. He was forced to run independently and he lost the election. So, and this was going to be his plan after he stopped being vice president to be the governor of New York. Hamilton, during this campaign, brutally attacked Burr's character. Burr then challenged Hamilton um, to a duel as another attempt by Burr to resuscitate his career. Um, this challenge came in response to a letter published in a newspaper in which Dr. Charles D. Cooper had reported that in a dinner conversation, Alexander Hamilton had called Burr a dangerous man. In Cooper's words, Hamilton also expressed, quote, a more despicable opinion of Burr. It was the word despicable that drew Burr's focus. Um, he was so angered that Hamilton had such a low thought of him that he would use that word. In his yeah. letter to Hamilton, he called for an explanation. Um, and then that qu request ballooned to a demand that Hamilton deny he had ever spoken ill of Burr. Hamilton felt that he could not comply with such a promise. Um, and he couldn't do it, especially without sacrificing his own political career. He thought, if I roll back on things I've said about Burr, I must roll back on all the on all of my words, and I will not. He was yeah. so proud. He had a lot of pride. Um, this caused Burr to challenge Hamilton to an quote an affair of honor, is what they were called instead of a duel. Mm. Um, Hamilton's death, actually, their duel was July 11th. It'll be the anniversary this Saturday. <laughs> yeah. Hamilton's death following their duel was heavily romanticized by the New York elite whom he had made rich. One of the reasons we remember him this way is because they painted his death as a national tragedy and it was because they could afford to put this propaganda out there that this national hero who had done so much for the world and so much for America had been fatally shot and had been murdered. Burr was charged with murder in New York and New Jersey, but he finished his term immune from prosecution in D.C. In 1805, Burr actually tried to seize the new Louisiana territory and establish an independent empire. He later <gasps> schemed to do the same at the Mexican border, but Burr's partner in operation, what? James Wilkinson, yes, this is crazy, ended up turning against him and Burr was arrested in, Lu in Louisiana. He was acquitted on a technicality, but at that point, public opinion of him was so poor that he fled to Europe and hid there. Um, he eventually returned to America, but he died essentially forgotten in 1836, and he never regained his reputation. Um, the last thing I'm going to talk about is probably my most important point when it comes to Hamilton, and that's the non-discussion of slavery in the show, um, and mm. also this painting of Hamilton as an abolitionist. Although Hamilton never owned any slaves and did speak out against it on a number of occasions, he chose to set aside his own personal feelings about slavery to work for George Washington, who owned more than 100 slaves. Hamilton urged Washington to free black soldiers and allowed them to join the military only because the British offered the same. His letter to John Jay on this topic was progressive for its time, which is likely why his history paints him as an abolitionist, especially by comparison to his political enemy, Thomas Jefferson. However, it is a known fact that Hamilton managed slave sales for his father-in-law, Philip Schuyler. At a young age, he kept the books for a Caribbean trading company in the slave trade while he was still on Nevis. He was not an abolitionist because opposing slavery was never at the front of his agenda. An abolitionist, by its definition, means that that is your core political goal. He was often advanced socially by slaveholding friends. New York was a slave colony and state. During the 1790s, one in five white homes had a slave. It is also 
thought that at one point his father-in-law purchased two slaves for him and Elizabeth Schuyler, although it has never been corroborated whether or not they actually did live with them and whether or not they kept them. But there are records of them being purchased. Oh... Author on Keep Ball writes, quote, though Hamilton had spent the latter part of his life conceding on the issue of slavery in order to further his personal ambitions and the interests of the early American Republic, his work as the eventual Treasury, of, Treasury Secretary of the United States allowed him to lay the foundations of an American economy independent of slavery. Hamilton did idealize an America built on manufacturing trade and federal subsidies, but whether or not this was intentional is sort of unknown. He did, like I said, he had anti-slavery ideas, but they certainly were not a cornerstone of his political, um, what's the word I'm looking for, of his political goals. Like they weren't, they really weren't high on the priority platform, list. Platform maybe. Yeah. yeah, platform. Yeah, they weren't high on his priority list um, until much later. And even then his actual concrete, tangible work into the abolitionist movement is still wishy-washy at best. Later in his life, he founded the New York Manumission Society, which was an abolitionist organization, but it's unknown exactly how involved he was. He did push for a New York emancipation law, which passed in 1799. So he did live to see um, slavery end in New York. Jefferson and Hamilton's disagreements over the racial future of America is one of the unspoken but prominent rifts between Jefferson and, and Hamilton in the show. I mean, it's mm-hmm. well documented, but in the show, it's not, it's not as prominent. Jefferson believed that when Black people received freedom, and Jefferson did talk about ending slavery, they would not be able to live alongside white people without violence. Therefore, he did not want to adopt them as citizens. It was Jefferson's idea that when the slaves were freed, that there would be so much tension between the two that it would cause anarchy. And that's why, when, that's why he was afraid to do it, um, which I'm going to talk about in a minute. Hamilton, on the other hand, w- one of the interesting things about him growing up uh, in the British West Indies is that he lived amongst a prominently slave community. So he did actually believe that slaves could be integrated into society. Um, Now he definitely was not like, they're just like us. In the letter that he wrote to John Jay, he said, they probably have the same natural faculties as us. But even suggesting Mm. that was considered like really radical, that that they have, that black people have the same brains ability as any white person even suggesting that was considered radical but that's exactly what it was it was only a suggestion you know he still was like on the fence about it but again i think history paints him as more of an abolitionist because he did have the idea that were the slaves freed they could live amongst us in america as opposed to jefferson who thought that would not be possible he actually wanted to send them back to africa i do want to take a minute here and offer miranda some credit Ahead of Hamilton's release on Disney Plus, this topic of slavery in Hamilton came up in an interview with NPR, and he said just a few weeks ago, quote, slavery is the third line of our show. It's a system in which every character in our show is complicit in some way or another. Hamilton, although he voiced anti-slavery beliefs, remained complicit in the system, and other than calling out Jefferson on his hypocrisy with regards to slavery in Act Two, doesn't really say much else over the course of Act Two, and I actually think that's pretty honest. And I, I would agree with him. I think the fact that Hamilton makes a couple of slights here and there, but doesn't openly talk about it, was very true to how he was in real life. 
that when yeah. pressed, he would make comments about it. But again, it was not at the top of his political agenda. Originally, a third cabinet battle in the show pitted Jefferson and Hamilton and Madison against each other on the topic of slavery. Madison was also a slave owner. Um, they had a, this song talks about the agreement um, in the Constitution to revisit the issue of slavery in 1808 and not make a decision nationally until then. This cabinet battle ends with Hamilton conceding to this term, and he says something along the lines of, like, let's just pray our ancestors will do better, um, which I think was a very genuine representation of how Hamilton felt about slavery, that he wanted it to end, but he didn't necessarily feel like it was his responsibility and his duty. Hmm. There's a lot of debate about why this song was cut. Some people think it should be in there because it's um, irresponsible to talk about these people without talking about their role in slavery. A professor of mine thinks, and I, I do agree, that to condense the topic of slavery into that single song in the show would be to tokenize it, to be like, well, this is all we're going to talk about because this is all that's worth talking about. And it oversimplifies Jefferson and Hamilton's views on it. Yeah. Also, once the topic of slavery is brought up, there's no way to move on from it. You can't have one song about slavery and be like, and that's our song about that, and then move on. Yeah. Um, and I, it would look like a cop-out, and I actually think it would be irresponsible to funnel that into one song and then try to move on into something else. Uh, so I do understand the purpose of not having longer segments about it in there because absolutely slavery informs their whole characters and informs who they are as an opinion and informed how they structured our government. But I think at the same time to only have it take up three minutes would be inappropriate and would be way too simple. And it would like many other parts of the show, I think much of the show fails from simplifying things down and simplifying our understanding of it. And that's one thing that I especially don't think should be simplified and I don't think should be summarized in the way much of the other show is. And I think where the rest of the show, there are moments that you can understand this is a summary of many things, but that I don't think can be a summary. I agree. If that makes sense. Um, I do think that it is, um, it, it, like, it brings about a discussion that when we're talking about Hamilton and we're talking about the fact that every character that in real life was a white person is played by a person of color, um, it's not, like, the only reason, or not the only, sorry, I'm sorry, the sounds over again, there was not a the only reason that the people who were the people who founded this country were white people it wasn't just like coincidence. It was a system that was built. Right. And I, I think it's hard to ignore that fact yes. when you're talking about why it's such a big deal that these people are people of color playing these characters, why it's such a flip. It's not just, oh, let's see if what other people would look like with these roles. It's, it's right. like a radical change, you know? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I agree with you. But that's just my thoughts on um, how and why slavery is not brought up in Hamilton. Um, again, this is this is a conversation I had with my professor who is white, um, but she also like worked at the public theater and like is 
incredibly well-versed in dramaturgy and playwriting and play structure and things like that. Um, and I think when you talk about like the ethics of it, um, I do think that is a fair point to understand that to bring it up and then sort of just drop it and leave it is like really un unfair and un unethical. So historian Ishmael Reed is a very outspoken opponent of the show Hamilton. He wrote his own play called The Haunting of Lin-Manuel Miranda that premiered at La Mama off Broadway last year. And it essentially takes down the show as a reminder of Hamilton's complicity in slavery and violence against Native Americans. Um, it, 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 I've watched clips of it and it really um, brings up, it's like, it's about um, Lin-Manuel Miranda as almost like a Scrooge type character getting haunted by <laughs> um, Black and Native people of the past who were hurt by Hamilton. Um, Ishmael Reed's also a part of a group who wrote a book called Historians on Hamilton. This group says Miranda got it all wrong. Hamilton was not a progressive man. He was an anti-immigration elitist, which is true. Um, they also say that uh, that his picture of Burr is just so distorted and the show pushes too far into Angelica's feminism. It is known for a fact that Angelica Siler did own slaves. Um, Reed sees the play as a form of entertainment made to sympathize slave owners. He also criticizes Miranda for writing a musical based on a white historian's account, um, mm. which is very fair. Ron Chernow wrote Hamilton um, and wrote it through the lens of a white man um, as yeah. opposed to understanding the and so of course he was like this amazing founding father as opposed to understanding the real implications that hamilton's policies had on black and people of color um dr lira de monero set monero de de monero says it's a musical about the mythology of the ruling class that anybody can join it it's the myth that the ruling class of the united states wants to believe but not the one we live in hmm in an article titled White Alexander Hamilton and Whitewashed Hamilton, Larry Dang writes, quote, while Miranda and other producers of the show clearly intended for the casting of non-white actors as white historical figures to be a way to make the history lesson of Hamilton more palatable to diverse audiences, and Miranda states that he wants to make the cast look like America today, the message displayed to the majority white audience is hauntingly similar to claims of post-raciality that are used to askew concerns of racism. Like the unfortunately common mantra, I have black friends, so I can't be racist, casting black actors in white roles allows both the white audience and more importantly, the white historical figures to assuage their guilt. Mm. Um, which I, I super agree with. I do think that's like a really safe way to show white people like black resistance. Like, because I don't think, I think that's what it's, that, I think that's a facade. I think it's a facade of, um, you know, uh, here, I think it's a facade of showing immigrants as heroes and showing black people as heroes because they're still doing it through the most famous white men in American history, you know? Yeah. I, I think, yeah, I, I very much agree with that quote. Um, I, I want to end by talking about the only moment in Hamilton that like really makes, makes me cringe and I actively want to be changed. Again, this is a show and I know there are many people out there who want the show to be changed and I, I completely see their reasons why and should Lin-Manuel Lin Miranda listen to them and decide to change the show, I think that would be really great. You know, um, I, it's not fair of me as a white person to say Hamilton's perfect and you know it's accurate. It's not. Um, there are a lot of systematic um, examples of Hamilton's 
complici complicity in creating racism in this country today. Um, and I do, I do understand and see and hear why people want it to change. Um, and should that happen, I'd support them. That I will talk about the moment for me that I really can't stand. Um, and the last person I want to talk about is a man named Cato. Cato was a slave um, who spied on behalf of his master, Hercules Mulligan, in New York City. There's no definitive information about his life before or after the war. We know Mulligan was an active member of the Sons of Liberty, a friend and roommate of Alexander Hamilton, and a member of the Culper Ring, which was a spy ring. Mulligan fell into business with a man named Haim Salomon, who had been captured by British forces, but released on the promise he would fight in the British army and translate for the German army. He told Mulligan this information, and Mulligan decided to advertise his tailoring business to British and German soldiers. Mulligan sent his slave Cato to Salomon's shop with ads to translate into German. Cato would return with the translations and valuable intelligence that Mulligan sent to Hamilton and the Continental Army. Using these newly established connections, Mulligan learned that General William Howe was planning to move south in summer 1777. Because the British did not suspect a slave would be a messenger for George Washington, they allowed him to cross the Hudson with packages marked for business. Uh, Cato was able to communicate Howe's movement to Washington in time to stop their movements outside of Philadelphia. Cato was actually captured and beaten um, nearly to death, but he did not talk. He did eventually make his way back to Mulligan and continued to perform crucial spy work for the remainder of the revolution. My issue is that in this show, all of this credit for his spy work is given to Mulligan. It's Hercules Mulligan, yeah. A white businessman who capitalized off of the loyalty and bravery of a slave. And for me, this moment in the show is a true one of erasure in order to support Turnout and Miranda's revisionist history to paint this group of ruffians as abolitionists. Mm -hmm. And I think that really, for me, is the message that needs reworking in the show. And I've heard that, like, there have been some changes and there are things that you definitely have a new attitude watching now than you did when it came out in 2015. And I'm interested to see them a hundred percent watching them on screen. But I think to, I think the, the problem that Hamilton easily falls in is that in our history, we can say that there are either heroes or villains and using winner's history, knowing that we won the American revolution and we gained all this independence. We want to say that they all were heroes. Um, and, but they weren't. And, you know, we want to uphold and appreciate what Thomas Jefferson wrote, that all men are created equal, while being aware that he himself did not practice that and did not believe that. And I think um, Hamilton falls too easily into the, like, American hero trope and into being like, wow, like, how, look how, look how proud we are to have this in our heritage, as opposed to really thinking about, like, who those people were and what they did that we can be critical of in order to do better. Yeah, I agree. And I want I want that to be the message of Hamilton. And it's just, I just don't think it is. But I think it could get there. But I think they just, I think they missed one too many points for me for that to be what you get out of it. But for me, I think, I think we should see history as a lesson, not as a moment, you know? Well, I mean, we're having that discussion right now with the Confederate statues, you know, like. It's true. It's true. And I'm glad that discussion is happening because I want it to continue to happen. Yeah. And I, and I hope, you know, in 25 years, they look at what we did, you know, and they look at what uh, 
our parents' generation did, and they say that was wrong, and we we should we should fix that. We need to ratify those wrongs, you know? Yeah. Instead of just saying, well, it's a part of our past. So that's my feelings on Hamilton. That's all about Alexander Hamilton, some of the real history of the man. Oh, wow. Thank you. You're very welcome. Um, You're that so smart. Is... No, stop. I'm actually about to write a paper on this, so this is like a good practice oh, okay. for me. <laughs> Thank you so much for listening. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at YKWIBW Podcast. You can check out our website, ibonowondering.com. I updated it. It looks great. It's going to have links. It's going to have information. It's going to have all these exciting things on it. Um, if you like what you're hearing, you can donate to us directly through the link in the bio of this episode, or please consider leaving us a five-star review on iTunes. It's so very helpful. And finally, if you have something that you've been wondering, you can email us at ibonowonderingpodcast at gmail.com, and we'd love to put it on our show. Jean, you know what I've been wondering? What have you been wondering, Sarah? So, when I was watching Twin Peaks, The Return, which is very scary, um, <laughs> it was brought to my attention in one episode that we are coming up on the six, nope, 75th anniversary of Hiroshima. And that's something oh. that I want to know more about. I think it's a very dark part of America's past yeah. with good reason. Um, and for that reason, we don't really hold ourselves accountable or talk about what happened in the aftermath of it. It's sort of like, I know there was also a second bomb dropped on Nagasaki. And mm -hmm. so it's like, we did that. Yikes. Move on was kind of how it always was painted in my class. But like, I want to know more about the aftermath of that. Um, of course. And all about that. So that's what I've been wondering. Okay, I will look into that. Whew, okay. Okay, Sarah. Do you know what yes. I've been wondering? What? Why are hospitals associated with religion? That's a good question. Let's find out, shall we? Yeah. Like, why, why are some of them Presbyterian and some of them are... Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Great. Pairs well with <laughs> many people dying. <laughs> This is going to be a morbid one. That's fine. <laughs> that's fine. Well, that's what you'll hear next week. Thank you so much for listening. This is You Know What I've Been Wondering. <laughs>